Hey everybody, welcome to the final part of the Christian series. Before we get rolling, just one announcement. I'm actually going on tour with my band Gunger and The Brilliance, who you've probably heard David Gunger on the podcast, if you've been a listener, my brother, he's got an amazing band called The Brilliance, and then Propaganda, who you may remember from Black and White, Racism in America, and it's going to be great. You can find tickets for that tour. It's going to be in February, and we may add some later spring dates as well. But find tickets at gungermusic.com slash tour. It's called the End of the World Tour, which I'm really stoked about that name. And we're going to be playing around with that idea through the night. But do check out those tickets, gungermusic.com slash tour. We just announced, so we're excited to get on tour again. And we will be finishing our last couple gatherings for the year, the Liturgist Gathering. I tell you to buy tickets for Nashville, but it's sold out. Um, but keep your eye out for gatherings next year. We are working hard on adding some more liturgist dates. If you know a venue that might be nice for us, go ahead and email us about that. Hope you enjoy the final Christian episode called Not Christian. It's a little different, you'll see. Welcome to the Liturgist Podcast, everybody. So we've been doing this Christian series, and at the beginning, we had mentioned that I, Michael Gunger, if you haven't learned my voice by now, this is me, hi. (laughs) Sometimes they call me Vishnu. I'm the only one of the hosts that doesn't identify as a Christian, and then we were talking recently, and William's like, come on now, I'll I'll make you a Christian, and we're like, well, (laughs) we're going to do an episode like that. So William in this episode, are you going to make me a Christian William? Here we go. <laughs> it's just William and me today. Nobody else. Nobody else. It's just mano y mano. This is a this is a come to Jesus. <laughs> a literal coming to Jesus is happening here. Are you ready? <laughs> I am ready. Because my heart and mind are open. Good. So, if you would allow me to, I would love to preach the gospel Come to you. Come on, baby. Can I, can I take about five to seven minutes and you preach the gospel oh, to man, you? Oh, man, I'm going to wave a hanky at you. <laughs> okay, well, actually, instead of preaching the gospel in the tradition, like I grew up in church, too. My dad was a minister. My grandfather was a pastor. Um, I, I feel like I was given, in many ways, similarly, the same type of gospel you were, which always you know, started with this, you know, story of the cross and then the resurrection and Easter, the whole Easter bit. Right. Mm -hmm. But actually I would love to share four stories with you. All right. Yeah. Okay. Story number one, Emmett Lewis Till was a young African-American man who was lynched in Mississippi in 1955. And at the age of 14, after being accused of offending a white woman in her family's grocery store, he was, he was murdered. During summer vacation in August 1955, he was visiting relatives in the Mississippi Delta. Um, The woman he spoke to was 21-year-old Carolyn Bryant. She was a white, married proprietor um, of a small grocery store there. Although what happened at the store is a matter of dispute, Till was accused of flirting or whistling at Bryant. And in 1955, she testified that Till made physical and verbal advances against her. 
Decades later, Bryant disclosed that she had fabricated the whole testimony regarding her interaction with Till, specifically the portion where she accused him of grabbing her waist and uttering obscenities. That part's not true, she said in a 2008 interview with historian historian Timothy Tyson. Till's interaction with Bryant perhaps unwittingly violated the code of conduct for an African-American male interacting with a white woman in the Jim Crow South. Several nights after the store incident, Bryant's husband, Roy, and his half-brother, J.W. Milliam, went armed to Till's great-uncle's house and abducted the boy. They took him away and beat and mutilated him before shooting him in the head and sinking his body in the Tallahoochee River. Three days later, Till's body was discovered and retrieved from the river. In September of 1955, Bryant and Milliam were acquitted by an all-white jury of Till's kidnapping and murder. Protected against double jeopardy, the two men publicly admitted in a 1956 interview with Look Magazine that they had killed Till. Story number two. Around the same time, there was Reese Taylor. She was born December 31st, 1919. She was an African-American woman from Abbeville in Henry County, Alabama, raised in a sharecropping family in the Jim Crow era. On September 3rd, 1944, Reese Taylor was kidnapped while leaving church and gang raped by six white men. Despite the men's confessions to authorities, two grand juries subsequently declined to indict the man. No charges were ever brought against her assailants. Now, before we go any further with these other stories, I want to share a little bit about the history of lynching. Lynching is a premeditated extrajudicial killing by a group. It's most often used to an alleged transgressor or to intimidate a minority group. It is an extreme form of informal group social control marked with the display of public spectacle for public intimidation. Lynching is to be considered an act of terrorism and punishable by law. Instances of lynching and similar mob violence can be found in every society. So in the United States, for instance, lynchings of African-Americans typically by hanging became frequent in the South during the period after Reconstruction era, especially during the decades on either side of the turn of the 20th century. At the time, Southern states were passing new constitutions and laws to disenfranchise African-Americans and impose legal segregation and Jim Crow rule. Most lynchings were conducted by white mobs against black victims, often suspects taken from jail before they were even tried by all-white juries, or even before arrest. The political message, the promotion of white supremacy and black powerlessness, was an important element of the ritual. Lynchings were photographed and published as postcards. They were popular souvenirs in the United States, and this was done to expand the intimidation. Victims were sometimes shot, burned alive, and otherwise tortured and mutilated in the public. In some cases, the mutilated body, the parts of the mutilated body, were taken as mementos by the spectators. Particularly in the West, other minorities, Native Americans, Mexicans, and Asians were also lynched. The South had the states with the highest total number of lynchings. According to the Tuskegee Institute, 4,743 people were lynched between 1882 and 1968 in the United States. That includes 3,446 African-Americans, 1,297 whites. A lot of people don't know that. More than 73% of the lynchings in the post-Civil War period occurred in the southern states. So let's fast forward and I want to tell you the third story. Let me talk to you about Trayvon Benjamin Martin. 
Trayvon was born on February 5th, 1995. He was a 17-year-old African-American teenager from Miami Gardens, Florida. He was fatally shot in Sanford, Florida by George Zimmerman. Martin had gone to visit his father at a townhouse, the retreat at Twin Lakes in Sanford. And on the evening of February 26th, not too long after his birthday, Martin was walking home alone after purchasing a bag of Skittles and an Arizona iced tea at a nearby convenience store. George Zimmerman, a self-appointed member of the Community Watch, saw Trayvon and reported him to the Sanford police as suspicious. Moments later, an altercation between the two individuals took place and Zimmerman fatally shot Trayvon in the chest. Let this sink in. A man with a gun stalked a black teenager, approached him after the cops told him not to pursue when he had called 911, and that teenager is dead. Unable to tell his side of the story, Zimmerman was acquitted. Fourth and final story. I want to talk to you about Cain and Abel. In the book of Genesis, Cain and Abel are the first two sons of Adam and Eve. Genesis 4, the story goes like this. And the human knew Eve, his woman, and she conceived and bore Cain. And she said, I have got me a man with the Lord. <laughs> and she bore as well his brother Abel. And Abel became a herder of sheep while Cain a tiller of the soil. And it happened in the course of time that Cain brought from the fruit of the soil an offering to the Lord. And Abel too had brought from the choice firstlings of his flock. And the Lord regarded Abel and his offering, but did not regard Cain and his offering. And Cain was very, he was very mad. And his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you so mad? Why is your face fallen? For whether you offer well or whether you do not, and the tent flap sin crouches, and for you, it's, it's the longing, but you will rule over it. And Cain said to his brother, let us go out to the field. When they were there in the field, Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Spoiler, the answer is yes. And he said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out from the soil. And so cursed shall you be by the soil that gaped with its mouth to take your brother's blood from your hand. I would like to submit to you that we are caught in a history where the powerful tend to win, where the conquerors maim, kill, and oppress, and ultimately live to tell their side of the story. We see it in these first three stories that these are founding murders. Though not the first of their kind, they were catalysts for movements of justice and equality and nonviolence. Emmett Till and Recy Taylor inspired the modern civil rights movement. There's the whole story about Emmett Till, how his, his mother laid the casket open so that everyone can see, and they took pictures of how bruised and broken his body was. You can still find these pictures on the internet. It's unreal. And the pictures of his main body is what the civil rights movement was founded on. Trayvon Martin inspired the current movement known as Black Lives Matter. All these stories fundamentally changed a generation. However, it is the fourth story that is the foundation of these recent movements. I would even argue that it's the fourth story that creates the foundation that they all sit on. The fourth story of Cain and Abel has grown to become the biggest catalyst for social change, but not in the way that you think. 
The story of Cain and Abel resolves in a hidden story, an underlying fifth and final story. There was a poor man of color in the ancient world, marginalized by Rome because he was a Jew and belonged to Judaism. Born of an unwed woman, his life was meant to be despised and forgotten. We know him today as Jesus of Nazareth or Yeshua. Yeshua challenged the political and religious institutions of his day by feeding the hungry, touching the diseased, laughing with prostitutes, and a whole host of unsavory characters. There are many stories to tell about this man, but there's only one in particular that stands out to me, and it's about a woman named Mary of Bethany. In the book of John, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here at a dinner, he was being given honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took out a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the whole house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who would later betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wage. He did not say this because he cared about the poor. I love how the Bible interjects this. <laughs> but because he was a thief and a keeper of the money bag. And he himself, uh, he couldn't help himself. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she would save this perfume for the day of my burial. Now, I know you as well as me, we've heard this story a million times. And uh, we've heard it preached a million different ways, particularly about Mary and her undignified response of worship. But I would like to take a different approach and stop to think about this for a moment. Here's Mary violently weeping over the body of a living man. She pours expensive oil, washes his feet with her hair, her snot, and her tears. Now imagine the horror that the scene would cause, right? In the, in the ancient world, Mary, a woman marginalized by society and religion, knew the trouble Jesus had caused by raising her brother from the grave. Mary knew all too well the power structure that had just been interrupted. Imagine her gathering the oil, heading to the party, knowing in her body what, what happens when you challenge the power of men. You pay for it with your life. Mary's disruptive act was not just a foreshadowing, but she erected in that moment a public memorial over a body marked to die. The public mourning of a tragedy yet to come. She was a prophetic signpost to a coming murder. The first she was the first prophetic signpost to the coming murder. It's why Jesus said whenever the gospel is preached, this story will be told as a memorial to those who would be the first to see and unmask the tragedy among us. The story continues. Religion and politics plot to murder Jesus. The collective blame gets put on him and the crowd, including the disciples who once adored him, betray him and the sacrifice is complete. Michael, this is the formal structure of the Gospels. It's the same story as any tragedy or mythology. A divine person, God or hero, is acclaimed and blamed for a crime they did not commit, put to death, usually by other divine beings, and rises again. The resurrection of a God or hero brings a new blessing on the community and a new peace and a new order. I'll rest my whole case on the anthropological work of scholar Rene Girard. Rene says, all mythical and biblical dramas, including the passion story, represent the same type of collective violence against a single victim. The Bible and the gospel see the victim as innocent. 
unjustly murdered by the deluded lynchers and persecutors. Jesus is the unjustifiably sacrificed lamb of God. All such victims are what we now call scapegoats, innocent targets of a senseless collective transference that is mimetic and mechanical, meaning there's a rhythm and a pattern to the human behavior of all human behavior. While myth and history go along with the charade, the Bible and the gospel do not. Far from surrendering to some morality of the slaves, as Nietzsche claimed, the biblical tradition punctures a universal delusion and reveals a truth that has never before been revealed, which is the innocence, not only of Jesus, but all similar victims. Rene Girard continues on and he says, in the ancient history or in any mythology, no one ever questions this guilt. In the gospels, the revealing account of scapegoating emanates not from the unanimous crowd, but from the dissenting few. Jesus is not divinized by the false unanimity that puts only a temporary end to collective violence. He is an unsuccessful scapegoat whose heroic willingness to die for the truth will ultimately make the entire cycle of satanic violence visible to all people and therefore inoperative. Perfect example is Martin Luther King and Selma. The visible display of that type of violence with African-Americans being beat by the white police officers on that bridge being televised across the nation was a pivotal moment and shifting the collective consciousness. Emmett Till's body open, being publicly lynched, murdered, was the image that was catalyzing for the civil rights movement. The Bible is unique in its disclosure of the standpoint of the victim, which means God takes the side of the victim. Not all religious narratives do this, but a new perspective emerges in Israel. God's siding with victims is especially prominent in the book of Psalms. You see it in the story of Joseph. <laughs> you see it all through the, te- the story of Job. You see it all through this text. Meaning, you hear consistent, sustained cries from the oppressed. So from a purely anthropological viewpoint, the Bible unveils the victim mechanism that lies beyond polytheism and mythology. The Bible unilaterally unveils everything we fundamentally need to know about human culture. The Bible recognizes this in the story of Cain and Abel. The story in Genesis 4 tells us, in fact, that the sign of Cain is the sign of civilization. The cross of Christ is the sign of salvation, which is revealed as the overcoming mimetic desire and violence through nonviolence of love and forgiveness. Therefore, the resurrection of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit is the vindication of the victim. And as Dr. James Cohn says, we must not look at it from the perspective of those who win, but those who have power. And no matter what the powerful may do, there is a humanity and a spirit that nobody can kill. Meaning, Christ is the force at work in the cosmos that allows you and I to resist the mimetic desire of scapegoat. The mimetic desire that causes us to kill and empowers us to lay down our lives for the weak and the vulnerable. As Brian Zahn tells us in Beauty Will Save the World, all civilization is based on a founding murder and revolves on an axis of power enforced by violence. But Jesus, uniquely Jesus, compared to any other religious deity, inaugurates a new kingdom and refounds this world on an axis of love expressed through forgiveness. In fact, Jesus is the only clear representation of unveiling the scapegoat mechanism at work in world literature and human history. Thus, Jesus dismantles the power, authority, and hierarchy of Satan, sin, and death, and builds civilization on a new logic, with Christ being the chief cornerstone. 
It is because of the cross of Christ that we now, you and I, live in a world that is concerned with victims. A world where the stories of Emmett Till, Reese Taylor, and Trayvon Martin have significant impact on you and me. Where their lives and the lives of other people like them matter. This is why you, Michael Gunger, a.k.a. Vishnu Das, do not need to be convinced to be a Christian. Because you already are one. (laughs) So I'm trying to, I don't want to argue about. Please do. Um, but I guess for the sake of conversation, there's no, if I don't push back on anything, there's no conversation to be had. <laughs> um, I love all that. And outside of, I'm, I'm trying to think of a couple of the, it's, it's usually the exclusive claims that bother me the most about Christianity. Um, putting it in exclusively a world figure that demonstrates the scapegoating mechanism I'll have to think more about that. I mean, there there are obviously other martyrs in other religions that have sh- shown grace upon dying. Um, I don't think the story that comes from, you know, when Gandhi gets killed, I don't think it's quite the same. <laughs> not, not quite. It's not to, to any degree the same effect that Christ's death has upon human civilization and what happens as a result of that. But I don't think he's the only loving person to have been needlessly yeah. and publicly. So that claim is, is a claim from Rene Girard, mm-hmm. um, someone who has researched and studied myth, like Greek mythology, mm-hmm. uh, world literature as a whole. And so the claim about the Bible being the, the most obvious place where mm-hmm. the, the, the victim is actually empowered. He actually argues from world religion standpoint and world literature standpoint, there's no clearer idea up until that point of human history where the victim has a voice and their voice matters. Mm-hmm. Up until that point, history is dominated by the conquerors. Um, and, and he's actually arguing that the, the Greek mythology um, is actually hiding a ritualistic violence. He goes, these aren't just stories made up about divine beings. He goes, these are actually deified victims. He argues that in the telling of these stories of deified victims, they become gods over time. And that's kind of the story of mythology. And there, mm-hmm. there's like a covering up of this violence that through the story of mythology, they're covering up ritualistic collective violence. And he argues that in human history, the story of Jesus is the story that for the ancient world that completely unmasks the scapegoat mechanism that's at work in human cultures and ritualistic violence in religion. Um, which I think I don't, I've not heard an argument against that. Um, when I've read contradicting work Mm -hmm. on, on Rene Girard, which to me is why Christ then would be the, the ground upon the invisible ground by which we all live and walk on. Meaning that revelation, that logic, that cornerstone of truth is the floor that the modern world is actually built on. I actually agree with all that. Um, and for that reason, would always, if I had to try to describe my views of reality and my favorite myths of human civilization, could never leave out Christianity. 
as a part of that story and part of my metaphors and part of the um, meta narrative of my life. I think that you see in Indian and Chinese and, and Japanese and some different Eastern thought traditions that have more of a oneness foundation, you see victims not having ground to stand on very easily. So like the caste system and the the people that are in horrible poverty that are, that can suffer unspeakable abuses with not much recourse with not much value of their individuality because at the bottom of it all they're part of the same godhead as the ruler as the oppressor and that is troublesome for building society for trying to build an equitable just loving peaceful honoring society to every being to every living being it's hard to honor every living being if you can't find a way in your story to say god is with those who everyone else has forgotten yeah especially with those um and that's what i love about christianity but i feel the same about christianity on the other side of the coin by itself does not work for me because if God is only with the oppressed, who is this God? What, how does this God function in the world? Is, does God not know? Does God not have the power to fix things? Is, is this a weak God? Is this an ignorant God? Is this a, a malicious God that put these people in this situation to be oppressed in the first place? Um, how, how can we judge? How can we, put the judgment anywhere else but the ultimate authority and power of the universe well i i think i think the gospel would actually i think the gospel would actually argue that that god is weak and vulnerable god is co-suffering love that jesus on the cross emmett till being lynched is a representation of power expressed under not power over so the idea of god being powerful mighty and strong is an idea of the conquerors it's the it's the perspective of those who win mm -hmm. that that we would deem god to not be penetrable to the very creation that he she created that it's not subject to it as well that god is not in time and space with us co-suffering in the same way that we are yet is the the energy on the ground that keeps rising up inside of weak and broken and poor people the energy that actually empowers them the spirit of god that empowers them to know that they are human to know that they are loved in spite of whatever the conquerors are doing and the oppressors and the suffering that's taking place i don't think the gospel really promises us that we're going to get rid of oppressors necessarily as much as it's promising that the that god will raise up the humble and in one sense, bring down low the mighty, but it's through the lifting up of the, of the, of the salt of the earth. But if God has the power to interact with space time, if it has the power to somehow become involved in human affairs, why only to the degree that he, she would empower what bold a little bit of extra boldness for somebody who's being who feels under the boot of somebody else to stand up and say no 
Is that that's the extent of what God can do? I think it, the extent of what God can do is still unfolding through the cosmos, right? Like taking an evolutionary point of view at this, no one is saying or having to claim that it that there has to be or justice is accomplished in a short amount of time. That we are we are unfolding with this story. That we are actually still in the story. That Christianity wasn't the end of the story. It was actually a new unfolding of the story that we are still and, and so you see through the text from Genesis to Revelation an idea of a garden that eventually consumes the whole earth and becomes a city. And this whole concept of a new Jerusalem, which is an equitable, peaceable, just just society, that we still have not yet seen. And I think that is the the now and not yet tension that we see in the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom is that it's here and it's also not yet. That it's here, but it's coming. Like Revelation, we see, what about the bloodshed, right? Cain and Abel. What about the bloodshed? What about all the prophets that were killed, right? Jesus addresses that in like Matthew 24 and 25. You, Israel, who kill the prophets, right? You say you would have never done it. You adorn their monuments with, you know, all these beautiful things. But look at what you're about to do to me, the coming tragedy and murder and the cycles of this. So I think we're in the story still breaking the cycles of mimetic desire and and uh, violence that is just tearing humanity apart. And God is that, you know, you heard the parables, right? Growing up of like, he's the, was it, he's the, he's the leaven, <laughs> you know, like being like yeah, needed yeah. in, like mm-hmm. it's, it's being worked out and we're in the process and we're in the journey of it. And so I don't think any of us gets to decide because we're in a formation and a lineage and a legacy of time and space of, in human history. I don't think any of us get to decide why not here and why not now? Because I don't think any of us are able to even scope the long game that's, that is that is unfolding, um, knowing that Christ or God is working all things out for good um, inside of that history. So we'll see where history takes us um, and where we land. Hmm. Okay, so a few other things for me that why Christianity on its own feels lacking um, I still think that, that a lot of that stuff is where I was at in 2012 with Christianity. Um, as far as it, it wasn't so much about a divine being that was a powerful God at that point for me. I was more like love and, and the, the way that we move into the future, um, through the love of God, bringing justice into the world, bringing shalom into the world. Um, but that still leaves a hole at the center of what is all of this? Why was this made? Who, what is the actual winning force in the universe? Why would I think it's love based on what I'm seeing? Um, so I, I feel, I still think the problem of evil exists within this, in this framework of how can a loving God that could create a universe. And at the time I was getting into like the futurity of God and like some of that stuff that you, it seems like you were kind of hinting at where God calling from the future, not just from a past, like a, a great watchmaker or something, but like calling from the future beingness into being. Um, but I still think, I think Christianity in its metaphysical constructs of the world, I still think it leaves a lot of unanswered questions for evil. Um, 
I also think that drawing such clean lines between oppressor and oppressed is uh, extremely pro- problematic because who draws those lines and who from moment to moment doesn't switch from being uh, somebody causing the suffering of others. Well, I think you see that story, the switching of that in the story of Israel. When you, like, if you're going to take the text as a progression of faith, meaning Israel is going on a journey through several thousand years, right, of spiritual evolution, human evolution, right? Um, You see inside of that text moments where from from Egypt in, in Israel, right? Where Moses gets raised up and God hears the cries of the oppressed and he says, let my people go all the way to Israel as an established nation. And Solomon becomes the arms dealer of the region and he's exploiting his own people and making them slaves. Like a Jewish man is king of the Jews and he's still making them slaves. Like, you know, where the, mm-hmm. you see this and you see the cycling of that. And to me, that's the whole notion of the prophets. Like what religious text actually includes its dissenters other than the Bible? The prophets are the dissenters. They're the ones that are constantly critiquing Israel and telling Israel they're a pile of shit, right? And then Israel's doing well for a while, and they're on the path of justice, and then they instantly move into exploitation. And, the, and, and then the God raises up a prophet, right? Here comes Jeremiah. Here comes Hosea. Israel, you've gone astray. And, and, and then here comes like Jesus as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, right? And so I think, again, it, it's not a strict binary of meaning this per- this group is forever oppressed and this group is forever oppressor. It is a fluid thing depending on ex- like exploitation and it is based on culture because this whole story and our story situates in a context in a culture. So I think for that question, it makes sense to me that God is always seeming to put his thumb with the ones that are being oppressed. And that might change because the oppressed might become the oppressor. Now, are you saying... As an identity or as a moment-to-moment lived experience? How do you mean it when you say God puts his thumb? So the most oppressed person in the world, a literal slave, a person who has no autonomy, who has been, who's being completely abused and oppressed, still eats if they're alive. If they're still, like, they're still taking resources or drinks Mm -hmm. water, at least for, at some point, you if you're going to stay alive for very long, you have to be eating, drinking. This is just at the very fundamental level of existence. You have to be taking resources from the earth. You have to be stomping on top of other life forms just to be an alive human being. So that's, and that's taking at the absolute bottom of the ladder. Everybody else, what about all the way up until you get to whoever's at the top, Trump and his cronies of the power ladder, I mean, anybody that's listening to this podcast is certainly in the upper echelons of, of power as far as human ladders go. Um, you don't have a lot of people that have to walk 10 miles to get a bucket of clean water with their iPhone listening to this show, probably. Um, but that, I don't think that means to, to label somebody as an oppressor. And even or or just as oppressed, I think can can what what's problematic about it, I think is that it can take us away from how we're living in each moment. Who's who says it 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 has to take us away from that? Why 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 I would say it not? It has to because if you, if just because you are 
oppressed or oppressor doesn't mean that you don't have moments of joy. Doesn't mean that you are, there aren't moments where you are grateful. What I'm saying is what oppressor doesn't have moments of being oppressed himself and what oppressed doesn't have moments of oppressing. Himself uh, yeah, but that there, there are, so we're talking about individual and collective, right? Yeah. We're, we're talking about individual sin or, or individual moments of uh, unfairness maybe, or, and, and also collective unfairness. Uh, and we're also talking about unconscious sin and conscious sin, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, like willful ignorance and actual ignorance. Um, and so I think those obviously are internal dynamics that are at work inside of people on an individual level, but as well as people on a corporate level. To me, what's striking about the gospel is regardless of where Israel in this story was at, here comes the Christ showing up in a moment and putting his thumb here and saying, Mm -hmm. I'm with these people. Not to say that, and the same was true with Moses and Pharaoh, right? And using these, these myths and these stories, Hey, Pharaoh, you have an opportunity. You are the oppressor, but you're not beyond love. You still just do the right thing and you will enter into Shalom. So there still is the, the invitation and the call for people to enter in, no matter if you're oppressed or oppressor into it. Like the, the, the wedding feast is invited for all. Like everyone gets to come, but not everyone's going to choose to. And I think that's the indictment of the gospel to human behavior, which is the son of man came into the world, but the the world loved its darkness, right? Mm -hmm. Which is the idea that even when given grace and opportunity and moments of clarity to see and hear, not everyone's going to choose it. People are still going to willfully choose, whether in an individual sense or in a collective sense, we're going to choose oppression. And I think in that way, God does parse out. God judges. He judges nations. And I think there's something personal about that God rather than, because sometimes to me with the oneness argument, it can, it can lend itself so big and so vague that you can sometimes even get lost in the feeling of in this moment, in this time, in this cultural context, in this scenario. Sure. Are there scenarios where, where, an oppressed person compared to another oppressed person might be better <laughs> or less oppressed or more like more. Sure. We can, you can parse those things out, but oppression at the end of the day or suffering at the end of the day is, is like you're saying it is universal. People experience suffering on very many levels, but there comes a moment. And this is what the biblical text is teaching us. There comes a moment where oppression must stop or where God says enough. I've heard the cries of the oppressed. I've heard the people who keep mourning under the weight of bad policy, the people who are, who are dying under the brutality of slavery, right? Like there came a reckoning with that. And so I think there is this energy that is forward motion in the cosmos that is telling us that no matter the injustice of the moment, just hold on. Mm-hmm. There's always going to be a change in the, in the scale. Like, and that to me is the fluidness of, of the universe and, and the oneness too. Like is, it is, it is in, there's an intentionality to it, I would argue. Um, and I think that's what Christianity is trying to make sense of in the polytheistic world is with all these millions of gods, who's coming to like, get me out of this pit as David is crying, right? My enemies have surrounded me. Like who's coming? And I think the clarity and the breakthrough of a Christ figure that comes and says, you know what? I got you. I'm here. 
right now in this moment, I've come to set the captives free. I could maybe, we could maybe argue, well, where were you for John the Baptist? Where were you 400 years ago when the Lord was, when you were silent, God, right? And you weren't speaking to the prophets. Where were you? Like, you can always go back and maybe like try to parse those things out. But the moment when liberation arrives, you got to recognize it and own it. And so I think that is what the gospel primarily is laser focused on. And I agree with you in one sense, the gospel is not enough, right? It's the beginning of the story, it's just the beginning. So there are, there are beautiful other religious traditions that can help inform and add and, and enlighten and enliven like some of our concepts mm. of um, this story. Because again, it's an unfolding story. But I do think we miss when uh, something when we forget that our basic understanding of seeing, particularly seeing the oppressed and seeing victims, is a byproduct of this story. It's the invisible ground. The Christ logic to me is the invisible ground by which everything's operating right now. And that shift in human history was radical. Mm. I think compared to any other shift doesn't take away any importance that other traditions have brought to the table or ideas or conversations, but the unmasking that happens in the text given to the Jewish people and the way it resonates with the reason why I brought up Emmett Till, Reese Taylor, because if I can't put it together in the lynching tree, if I can't put the cross together in the lynching tree, how am I supposed to put it together on a cross 2000 years ago in Calvary? I can't actually put it together because I'm, that's just fantasy. So I have, I need the current moment to, to look back at history, to look at time, to like actually realize what was going on then. And these stories of today, Trayvon Martin helps me see the gospel because I see Christ in the broken body of Trayvon Martin. I see Christ in the raping of Reese Taylor. I see Christ in the maiming and the throwing in the river of Emmett Till and every black and brown and white person that was hung and an Asian and Native American person who ever experienced genocide. And to know that it's not okay and that God says it's not okay and he's coming for the oppressed. Yeah, I love all that still, again, and I think the if there's any disagreement, which I'm not sure there's much disagreement between us, but why it still feels disingenuous to a degree to identify exclusively as a Christian, I'll, I'll give you two little stories, all right? My own two stories that I just made up. Go for it. You, oh, you just made them up right now? Right now. You weren't even listening to me. You were making I was, up stories. No, I know. All I just have, I just wrote the name. I had a example pop in my head i wrote the name down of each story so i'm about to make up the story the the first one um imagine that beyonce begins a thing at her shows where she like realizes that the people that have paid the the least amount of money the people in the back the nosebleeds she loves them just as much and the whole concerts are always like built for the rich people in the front she wants to like be for the fans in the back. And so she comes in the back and gives like most of the performance for the, from the, for the back of the arena. People are like, Holy shit. It's so, you know, it'd be wild and everybody tough. Beyonce really, believe, but at some point, if like that became the rule, if that became, you just know that that's what happens and you, and it became like solid. Um, eventually the back would become the front be like well you just i'm gonna sit in the back because <laughs> that's the front right 
Um, story number one. Second story. Imagine you have a, a, a food kitchen. I guess all kitchens are food kitchens. <laughs> what are they called? Food pantry or the, like a, a, a home, homeless outreach or something. And um, you cook food and, and everyone comes and like you have, you've put all this money into it. You put all this energy into it. And then whatever you've cooked is completely inedible for human consumption. It's like dolphin food or something, but it's poisonous for (laughs) people. Okay. So like Christianity on the level that you're talking about, all the stuff, I love it. But for me, when I go down, if you try to say that's how it is, God has his thumb with the oppressed. And you try to take that down to the atomic level. You try to take that down to strings. You try to take that out to the multiverse. You try to take that in any way other than actual human political realities. It starts to break down philosophically for me. If the source of the universe is on a side, if he's drawing lines where this part of my creation is in and this part of my creation is out, and the part of that's in for me is the one that everybody else says is out, but re- they really are in, It's you still have the same... I think you're assuming a lot there. So first off, um, I think the gospel liberates the entire cosmos, right? I actually think for you, you would love, um, and recently I tweeted a a little thing from Tehard de Chardin, my favorite painter at Saint. I think you would love his work because he was a paleontologist who also was a theologian and a mystic. And he was espousing uh, uh, Christic understandings like from like the perspective of the evolutionary process in terms of love and Christ being at the center of all things and, and the, attra- the law of attraction. Like he was, he was like, there's tons of people through church history who have um, brought Christ to the cosmic level and the subatomic level, even in the last uh, hundred or so years. Um, so th- I, there's that. Um, also too, I, I think you're missing the idea of uh, oppress. So, so first off, we know because of human pattern and behavior, which is the mimetic desire thing, we know there are certain patterns and rhythms to what humans like and dislike. Like there just are like there are certain people who just and certain groups of people who do historically, traditionally, that it just doesn't always like flip 180 degrees. Like it, you know, you do. There's a lot of or longstanding patterns there in terms of why are these people the most shitted on in human history, right? Mm-hmm. Like or these groups of identities or. Um, or these people that live in this intersection of identity, like are just the ones we just struggle with and have for like thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Like there, there is that too. But, uh, but the, the state of the oppressed is a fluid concept. I think I tried to explain that really well, even with Israel in terms of how they were, they, they were the oppressed at one time, but then they would get on the wrong side of history. And then God like raised up prophets or whoever to, to like basically beat them and like lead them back. Um, and so I think, I think there are, the, the Beyonce example, for instance, is you're right. If if the back becomes the stage by which now it's the new front, then the front is the back yeah. and, go, and Beyonce is going to go back to the back. Yeah. <laughs> like it's just <laughs> yeah. going to, you know, like there is this, this push and pull with it. Um, also, I think too, it seems to me that there, and you've already said we agree on a ton, um, but also I do think there's, you do seem to have a bit of a, or at least that I'm hearing, a type of assumption that like if for instance i'm if we're in major agreement here then there's no reason for you not to be a christian 
first and foremost. <laughs> like, like, you know what I mean? Like, if you majorly, like, you love your wife. You are married to Lisa. I've seen it. You love that woman. Y'all are married. You don't agree with that woman on everything. I've seen that too. But you agree on the majority of stuff. And, there, and so there is, but there's still a commitment that is there. There's a faithfulness. There can be a frustration sometimes. There can be a push and pull and I don't know, whatever. But the commitment is still there. So if, if you have a majority stake in what I would perceive, what I presented, but also beyond what I presented um, into like a real agreement with these things, no one is telling you it has to be purely exclusive. Yeah, yeah. No one is telling you it has to. Well, well some, people. some people are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We both, like, wait, there are some people that will say that. <laughs> but, the Gospel Coalition article yeah. today said otherwise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, who cares about what they think? Literally, <laughs> yeah. I don't know anybody down the street of your house right now that's like, hey, "Did you hear what the Gospel Coalition said Nobody about cares. Mike no. and Mike?" Not no, in my world. No. Not not. No one cares. Um, and even the, mo- the majority of the church feels like it's irrelevant. So there's that for them. Shade, shade, shade. Um, <laughs> but you know, like, so if you're in. Like if you're in agreement with the majority of the 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 understanding of what we're talking about, then it's just a language issue for you mostly at this point. But also, I think there is a fidelity that happens when you um, commit. Right? You know this in your marriage. Once again, like when you commit to a religious practice, um, and even if it's an inclusive religious practice that has multiple components to it, but you're faithful to it in terms of like fleshing it out and wrestling mm. with its. Uh, wrestling with its inadequacies or because again we're unfolding the story still the story didn't end with jesus right like the to me that became the flashpoint right and if i i got to put it together in the in the lynching tree i've got to put it together in the who's the oppressed right now and that might change in 50 years or 100 if we can break some old patterns but i think for the most part much of what's considered uh oppress and oppressor you i can read the biblical text I can read the prophets and really relate so much of it to today currently. And you would feel like nothing has changed in 6,000 years. And that's what's kind of funny about it. And that's what the whole Rene Girard's work on mimetic theory and mimetic desire is so important because we often just find ourselves as humans in these ruts of desire and practice and ritual that are problematic for us as humans, right? Like we copy, we become the Satan when we accuse and blame and enter into the scapegoat. And that is just as true now as it was 3,000 years ago. The only difference is Christ unveiled the work. He broke the scapegoat mechanism and the power and the authority of Satan, which is the accuser. To So now we can see it. Now I can actually go, that's scapegoating. 3,000 years ago, people couldn't do that or say that. That wasn't even an intellectual concept or breakthrough. And now we have it. And that to me, so to me, even the questions you're asking are built on the framework of the invisible work of Christ. That is the foundation yep. of the universe. So in that way... Well, you, okay, of the... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm saying. using. I'm and I'm. I'm pulling from Tehard, which I I didn't bring any here today for you, but that could be an, the another conversation because I I told you I have that book, The Body Divine, which is a reflective work of the story of the Brahmin as a body metaphor and the body of Christ as a metaphor for ultimate reality and how similar they are. Like there's actually a lot of crossover and similarity between our understanding of the body of Christ or the cosmic Christ, which Tehard. Uh, espoused really well actually coined the term i believe as well as even some of the hindu understanding of, of the brahman and what what it means of earth and creation and the cosmos as a as a literal body um yeah by saying that's the by saying the work of christ in the universe i was saying yeah at first i said yeah i thought you meant christendom and the, the, the our sense of morality our sense of justice our sense of equality all that has come from christendom which i would agree with and i would agree 
I agree is the wrong word because it's a metaphor. I do also love the metaphor of saying that the work of the universe is the work of Christ. But saying that because you're calling the work of the universe the work of Christ should equate with someone being a Christian doesn't you're labeling both things. It is language. Yeah, it is a language thing. And that's okay because we can shift and form language, but the intent has to remain like the intent of what I'm saying, I think is the same as you. Um, Because again, it's metaphor is just language used to describe reality and religion ultimately is a grand metaphor, a type of theory of everything to describe a theory of everything that needs improvement, that, that needs refining, that needs outside instruction that needs to be critiqued, that needs to be celebrated. And uh, I think there's still, I, you know, I think Brian Zahn says this and I love it. He's like, I, what if these are the early days? <laughs> what if this is the early church? Like we still, we think of it as like, yeah, yeah. you know, but like, what if this is still in light of human history, the, the, the real early church and yep. we're still fleshing out an intellectual, psychological, spiritual, emotional years breakthrough. years from now, what's going to be the yeah, result of all. Yeah, exactly. And so how we program our AI. What's gonna, <laughs> what, so. I didn't explain the the food line one. And this one maybe is the most important aspect of why I find it necessary if I say I'm Christian to also include other stories in that description. Just And just to clarify, the Bible itself uses other stories to describe its story in the text. Mm. You see it's Greek true. mythology inside the text. Yeah. You see uh, poetry that is not like, like inside the text that doesn't come from that religious tradition. So Yes, but the fact that you went right to the Bible from Christianity shows how the common usage of Christianity places extra emphasis as the Bible as sacred text where Harry Potter is not sacred text or that, no, the that, heart sutra is not necessarily sacred text. That's an assumption because if you know, you know me, I, I know I, you, but I consider as a whole, the, as the a whole by the common understanding of the word Christian, if you said to most people, what's, what's sacred text for a Christian, the Bible, Harry Potter, the heart sutras, all of the above. Most people would say the Bible. Right? I mean, it's like common language. Most, Yeah. Yeah. No, um, no one's denying that. I'm not denying it. I'm yeah. also just saying it's it's there are other sacred texts, and that's because you're an open Christian and one of the. Is that what now you're labeling me? Huh? <laughs> Why can't I just be a Christian? Why I got to be an open? But see, that's all, that's also the way that that's also the way oppressive people inside religious traditions frame people they believe as unorthodox is to say, oh, you're the you're. It's got to be an add-on, right? You can't just be a Christian. You got to be a progressive Christian. You can't just be a Christian. You have to be a open like. That is a type of like way of marginalizing, right? And that to me, I know that's not what you're doing, but that language is a betrayal of even what you believe to of like. Uh, to me, it was a is a complimentary adjective of the kind of Christian. Fair. And it wasn't I, a category of Christian necessarily, and I, I don't think all people that who are open right now will be open next moment. But as a person, you are generally a fairly generous with your orthodoxy kind of a person in my experience with you. Yeah. So in the food line, in the food line analogy, I think Christianity does a great job at providing a framework, especially Christianity that, that in the way that you have described it, which is my favorite way of thinking about Christianity. Like the, all the ticket to the afterlife stuff, by saying a prayer, that stuff is just long gone. If that was all that Christianity was, I wouldn't even be having this conversation with you. Yeah, yeah. 
And I, um, I wonder if you thought that's what I was going to bring to the table of like, now, Michael, which we still can. We can pray a prayer and have you open. <laughs> that would be awesome. And open it. Let's actually end on that. Oh, that would be, be so funny. Um, I think so. I think Christianity does a great job at providing food lines, literally and metaphorically, um, providing avenues for justice, for hospitality, for love and service and creativity, and this, the whole structure of the the whole scriptural arc of humankind being the image of God that are co-creators in a way that are like naming the animals that are um, creating the world with God. I think that's all really useful stuff for building civilizations (laughs) and building and building complex social groups where we can figure out how to coexist and not kill each other. Um, I think it's really important, really beautiful stories. But I don't think Christianity does a good job for the most part of helping an individual become enlightened. No. You're saying you're agreeing with me? I'm saying you're wrong. Oh, okay. Well, let me finish. (laughs) I'm like, nah. (laughs) So here's what I mean by that. If the Christian mission is a success, if we get everybody in the world to come to our literal or metaphorical table for the food, if every Christian gets what they're wanting, so whether that's everybody says the sinner's prayer, whether that's everybody has opportunity for education, access to, to health care and, and love and... Um, self-expression, creativity, and uh, all of it. All of the things. It was like everybody puts in their wish list. What do you want? And Santa Claus God's like, yep, you got it, you got it, you got it. People are still going to be miserable. Oh, uh, no, I disagree. I, Let I, me finish. Let me oh, finish. I thought you were done. Sorry. I think people will get to that food line and they will not be able to taste the food in their mouths. I, know, I see that because we live in Los Angeles where I know people that have everything that they want. And they've gotten all the things that they think they need and they still don't know how to, they may have a finer steak for dinner than the poor person that had the rice and beans for dinner. But if they don't know how to taste that steak, if they don't know how to savor and be in that moment and, and experience the freedom of being here and now fully all the extra, all the justice, all the equitable society in the world does not make a person free. Well, where do, where do you get that that's all that the gospel is about? Meaning, I mean, you know, you quoted the scripture to me, actually, I think it was yesterday or the day before, right? Like, uh, maybe it was today, uh, you know, pay no attention what, you know, what you will like eat for tomorrow. Like, mm-hmm. like, like do, mm-hmm. the, do the birds do that? Like mm-hmm. you see, like, I think what you're re- resisting is the lack of discipleship like actual discipleship that the church in our american western cultural context has like failed miserably at Mm -hmm. i think that's more of what you're resisting than the actual transcendence that 
is in the text because you can look all through the texts yes. and see the mysticism, no, I, I agree see the awakening, the enlightening. I mean, from the the book of John is literally one of the most mystical books. Like the the, the oneness metaphor of the vine and the I and you and you and me and like the and all the way to the book of Revelation and the apocalyptic literature and the imagery and the and the like the metaphysical reality of what the, those things represent in time and space. It's it's wild. It's big. The text the text blurs sexual lines i mean look at esther and that whole story with the king like i mean we've like sanitized it but it is a gruesome story about like a woman who you know does a lot of things she shouldn't be doing by our modern evangelical standards in order to have a moment with the king right like in the story of ruth and all these the story of rahab the prostitute like you there's to me so much wildness inside the text and I'm not saying it's the only wildness that exists in religion, whatever. I'm saying it is, I think the text has been sanitized. It has been p- poorly used and poorly preached and poorly taught and poorly executed inside a Christian community and therefore has produced the apathetic American culture that we see around us. But that has nothing to do to me with the core intention of what the text is trying to teach us. So the lack of enlightenment, I don't think that is indicti- indicative of the Christian faith. I think it is indicative of our, the way we have pursued the faith, the way we have taught it and the way we have taught others about it. And so to me, I would love to see a restoring of the true mystery, doubt and wildness and, and blurring of lines that happens inside of the text and just the wild breaking of rules of the rules that it says of itself and how it subverts itself constantly time and time again. Um, this is right. And then it subverts itself. Like the prophets come and just say some wild shit that just subverts everything. And then they're like, I thought God wanted this. God said sacrifice. And then David's like, you know what? A heart you've desired, not sacrifice. Well, how do you say that while you're still doing sacrifices in the temple? Like that doesn't, it's contradictory. Like there's so much things that are meant to break us out of the dualism inside of the text to me that I think we just miss. I do think we miss it. I think that I could make a similar argument that, or somebody better than me could make a similar argument about why Hindu oneness does not lead to injustice, but it's people taking it wrong. It's people. There, there can be arguments in and around that. And I, I, I don't feel qualified to have that conversation because I haven't studied it like as nearly as much as you have. I feel like I'm just on the tip of even understanding uh, some of those concepts and words, like the fact that I can even say Brahman is a miracle <laughs> like and, and sort of understand what it means. But it's only because this book that I'm currently reading. But um, so I, I don't even feel qual- qualified to have that conversation in terms of is Hinduism um, somehow inherently as a theology um lacking in its ability to deal with injustice or not. Mm-hmm. I've heard arguments around it, but I, I personally yeah. couldn't fight here or there about that. But to, to me, like to me, the proof is in the pudding. So you look at Hindu culture and the amount of enlightened individuals who are completely free versus the Christian trajectory. I think it's quite clear that Hinduism is vastly superior as a practice, as a mythology to allowing people to experience Nirvana, Moksha, enlightenment, whatever you want to call salvation, Satori, where it doesn't matter if you're eating dirt or the steak or whatever you are. Okay. You're free. You're, there is no more suffering that you're imprisoned by and versus the proof for the, in the pudding for the Christian story to me is the society that it has built. It is a more equitable, just society 
for people on the margins than East, most Eastern cultures are. So I don't, I would, I would never want to make a, an overly generalized final say that on either side of it, that Christians cannot be enlightened and that Hindu people cannot be just. I think that's ridiculous and unfair, but as a general movement and as, and as like a, but, and, but as well, that time space culture, right. Is playing a part of that, right? If you go to certain parts of the church in underground China, you're going to experience a type of transcendence that won't, you don't get here. Right. Mm-hmm. Like the passion and the fervor that you see in South Korea from Christians. Now there, there's some things there that I, I could say, Oh, that's that there's a moralism there and a, and a, and a, like a legalism there that but to me has been taught from America that they've ingested, but the type of fervor and passion you see, they say they have a whole style of prayer. They have like a whole mountain of prayer. And like when you say pray Korean style, you instantly, it's like you get chills what happens in that room. Like, and you just have tens of thousands of people literally like praying at the same time with the most sincere conviction you'll ever hear. Like, I, I don't, I think it's, st- there's so much culture around the world that we don't partake of when we think of Christianity and, and, and flavors and expression that I think we can, we're only generally, and we both, I think we both can be guilty of this, judging it through the American lens only as it relates to this expression. But I think there's parts of the world that experience a vibrant, enlightened form of Christianity that leads them to the present moment in a way that I don't think we get here. Um, so, but I hear you in the sense of, um, in juxtaposing India to America, like that seems in my little understanding to be somewhat right. Um, however, I do think, and this is my, my way of imploring you like, (laughs) Hey, Michael, there is a whole host of mysticism in your Christian roots that still can sing to you and can, and it does, it does. That's all. That's all I'm. And actually, and like I argued in my, my spiel, I think you already are a Christian. (laughs) Yeah. And here's, for me, it actually comes to language because what we haven't really, what you, for me, what you haven't necessarily done is connected what I love about Christianity to the necessity of calling yourself a Christian. I know you said being faithful to the story and that was, I liked and appreciated that being as far as faithful to like, like you would be in a marriage, faithful to a practice, to a community, to a movement of these are people that have called themselves Christians for thousands of years. You came up in that story in that community. Why not evolve within it? Is that kind of what you're saying rather than? Yeah, 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 sure. And, and that's where I feel. But I also feel faithful to the people that have left it. I also feel to the people faithful to those who have said, you know what? Christianity has gone far enough with like, Certainly, most people associate Christianity when you say it's a, it's a word. You say Christian. Jesus wasn't a Christian, right? So you're saying, but you so we associated with Jesus. So okay, there's a point for if you like Jesus, that's a point for being a Christian because most people would associate it with Jesus. But most people would also associate. Most people would. It depends where you're at. Um, but a lot of people, I should say, would associate it with bigotry a lot of people would associate it with white supremacy a lot of people would associate it with colonialism a lot of people would associate it with um forsaking the here and now for the sake of some future goal 
Um, and I fully understand and agree, actually, with anyone that makes that indictment against Christianity mm-hmm. today in the American, con- particularly in the American Western European context. I would fully, I would not even argue it, wouldn't bat an eye against mm-hmm. it. I would say, hell yeah, you're right. You are absolutely right. But you know what I'd also say too, but we're living in the dark ages though. Like these are the religious dark ages. Like we like to think this is the height of Christianity Mm. in America, but these are the dark ages. Truth is far from the public square. Mm -hmm. It really is. And the way we express our faith has, it's, it's not even relatively close to the history of this Judeo Christian movement. Like it's not even, it's so often apostate that I don't think that so that I, but I think both things can be true. Yes. I think both like, and that is the hard tension about the here and now. And so if I, if somebody wants to leave the faith because they, it no longer, this religion no longer serves them, God bless you or whoever bless you or nothing bless you. But like, what does it mean to leave the faith? Yeah. I, I personally, I don't think you can. Cause I think it's, it's part of our story. It's embedded in our politics. It's embedded in our culture. It's like, I don't think you can really leave it, but well, that's how I feel like I can't leave. I've, I can't leave the. I can't leave Christ. What I call Christ, because it's everything. <laughs> yeah, because Christ. It, that, but that is the metaphor of Christ. Christ is a metaphor yeah. for reality and everything. It's the, yeah. you know. So I can't forget that I know and like that metaphor. I guess I could not like the metaphor, but I. Yeah. <laughs> but but the reality. The still language exists. is used in this culture in this context. I mean. I, I I and like fair. I like your this being the dark ages I like that perspective. I don't know that I would see the past as better. I think Oh, I do, I'm not saying the past is better either. I'm saying it's all the dark ages. But oh, gotcha, but, the, gotcha. but but it's yeah. like a flicker in the in in the dark that's happening and more fl- like and the flicker in the flame I think is growing and expanding, but it doesn't mean that it's still not relatively mostly dark. But what I'm what I'm wondering is is part of the flicker getting rid of the the label. You know what? I can't unilaterally make that decision. Mm-hmm. If if collectively moving forward, that is the decision that gets made. Yeah. The label's the label. Like I could literally care less about the the letters that comprise the word Christian and them being in that order. Because I, I do think, and this is why I think we're in the dark ages, because we treat Christianity so superstitiously. We yeah. treat it so like, I mean, it, it actually feels more like Harry Potter than Harry Potter, truthfully, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. much of the vein of the church. It, it, is, it is like a a belief system it's like a spell and like a belief system like where you have to just like you say it and something magically happens right and no disrespect to the to the to the witches out there who maybe can cast some real spells i don't know but (laughs) i don't even i don't know i'm not claiming to know i'm just saying maybe there are some of you i've heard some of you they're like no there's nothing that happens over there and then i've heard people say it is so i don't know i don't live in that world I I just there's a little bit of witch insurance <laughs> yeah yeah for you right now I dabble no I don't dabble <laughs> but like, I'm open but I'm not that open like but but you know what I mean like uh, I think we live in such a it's meaning it's there's a fear base to it like using the spiral dynamics thing it's so purple right like if I gotta like pray to the gods to get my crop water right like and it's we treat it so superstitious we hold it so superstitiously that's why i think we live in the dark ages we we can't even have an intellectual conversation without getting offended right like we can't explore other religious traditions and let that reform reinform what we believe because we're afraid we're afraid of being labeled universalist and pluralist like that's a dirty word interfaith is somehow a dirty word in the church you can't, i'm like y'all we just literally appropriated a whole other faith called judaism <laughs> and you know and then 
like it, Christianity was a cult of out of Judaism. Like, and yeah. then we just like made it normal. And then somehow like anyone that deviates from that is like, it's so bizarre. Like it's, we are in the dark ages of, of the early church. Like we just are, and we're unraveling white supremacy and its hold on the world and colonialism, imperialism, all of the isms. But I do think there is a wildness inside of the story that is still currently unfolding in and through us. And we're going to be part of that sacred text. I, I, I think that we are the sacred text. We are the living epistles. We are holy. And this whole earth is holy and everything is coming together as one. And that is the whole thrust of the Christ of Christ. So yeah, we're in the dark ages. We're going to come out, help lead the way, liberate some people along the way, and then we'll pass it on to the, to the generations following and they'll continue the work. And I, I guess just there's a, there's a lot of people that think the better way forward is without the label and confines of needing to put everything through the Christian metaphors and language and practices and structures of authority. And, and so, I mean, when you think about, um, two polar opposites of human beings within Christian dumb, meaning Western civilization, <laughs> post Christian dumb, um, I mean, take like a Richard Dawkins and a John Piper. They, there's a lot more that those two agree with. Yep. Then they actually disagree with. They're on opposite sides of a culture war. But there are two middle-aged white dudes that speak English, that have money and operate in a capitalistic society. And like, they've got a lot of similar, like if you put everything of what they do down uh, on in their day, like they wake up, (laughs) brush your teeth, eat breakfast, do it. Like they share so much of their perspectives about what it is to be a human being and what they should be doing with their day. Uh, and then, and then to get into like God language and they're like, no, I'm a, I'm your enemy. And so yeah. I, I think all this stuff that we're talking about, I'm like, yes, of course. I love the story of God being with the oppressed and, 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 Christ and, and through Jesus, Jesus revealing the scapegoat mechanism of humans desire to shed innocent blood for the sake of their own guilt and the shame in their own hearts. And, um, all this stuff is amazing. And, but there is also a stream of thought within Christianity that does tend, that is a bit like, colonial and it's in that it does try to claim this just happened uh, with some loved ones of mine. I won't say who they were, but one person is not a Christian one is, and it was a similar thing to what you're saying. You are, well, I think you are a Christian, which i came from it enough to know that I hear love in it. I hear like, I'm not on against, I'm on the same team as you, but what it can sound like to other people is your language and your metaphors are not, the correct ones and you just don't know it that is that is all fair and i i just want to say for anyone that hears that from me or feels like my insistence though i'm i'm i feel like i'm so lightly insisting on it uh yeah we're that, playfully that l- i'm not offended language. from you by yeah. yeah um if but anyone listening that would hear that i want you to know that i do think this is a collective project meaning and this is what i mean by it so the argument that you're talking about with your loved ones to me is a perfect example of this right um, I do think that 
maybe because of my understanding and my history as a black American, I know what it means to be a part of a lineage and a legacy that is bigger than myself. I know what it means to come from folk. And a lot of people do, especially people that have stories of immigrant stories. Like you come from folk that like, you know, they didn't, they're, they were in a different world. They made bold risks, you know, for me, it was actually plunder and kidnapping, <laughs> but like, and, but for other people, it was like, we're leaving the old world and coming to a new world and we're starting from scratch. Right. Um, and in that there's a pain there because there's a forgetting of history. And I think w- we have a beautiful opportunity because of the internet to actually reclaim our histories, to reclaim our collective stories, to reclaim what made, what makes and has made who we like, who we are great and like where we've come from great. And so I think there should be this wrestle between your two family members about you. I think you are a Christian. Actually, I don't like that language. I think that's the genuine confrontation that needs to happen right now, because I think to acknowledge it is to say that it matters. And I think there are a lot of people that are apathetic and shut down because of this, the conversation of religion. So I'm happy when I hear the arguments because I'm like, at least you think it matters enough to yell about it, Mm -hmm. to actually like fight for something. And so as we have this conversation generationally, I would love for that to be put on the table. Let's talk about, is this label no longer working for us? Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, I think evangelicalism is a label that's getting ditched quicker and quicker, Mm -hmm. right? That you see that changing. And maybe Christian will go along with that too. Maybe, I don't know, but I don't get to solely say, Mm -hmm. but neither do you. And neither does that other person. Well, you get to say for yourself. You do get to say for yourself, but also knowing, the, the only caution I would only say in that is, knowing that and this is the oneness message too that i think is true regard outside of like any one particular religion is and and also physics we are interconnected and interrelated Mm -hmm. on on so many levels that so the the tendency for self-autonomy i think in our hyper individualized culture can go too far where you think you literally just make everything yourself as if you're not a product of your parents, as if you're not a product of mm-hmm. the religion you came from, mm-hmm. as if you're not a product of a whole host of people who sacrificed and died for you to be here or lived life and in of such asteroids a asteroids zipping around that galaxy in the far. Exactly. Yeah. Like that there isn't this, this thing that has created, a, like there, there are forces that have created a way for you some way and somehow. And even if that somehow in some way is trauma, rape or incest or like you're here. And, and you're a part of it and you're loved. And so therefore we can, we can reform the conversation. We can, we can add new things into the pot. We can challenge certain things. And so I would just say for anyone that considers himself not a Christian or post evangelical, meaning like you're just like, yeah, whatever, that's fine. That's fair. And actually for a lot of you, you need to do that. You need to go on a 10 year journey or 20 year journey maybe, and just not relate to anything because of so much shame and trauma in your body around it. Like that's, I'm not saying everyone's got to be in the fight at all times, but I am saying I think it's important for us to get out of our individual views of our religious thoughts and to engage in in collective thought Mm -hmm. that actually can help propel and move all of us forward. And, 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 And it's going to be intense and it's going to be full of disagreement. But it's a beautiful thing to do and to wrestle and to pass that wrestle on to our children. Yeah, that that for me is the biggest argument probably for identifying as a Christian as far as not being alone in the in the language not being a, an island off of the other continents um, in the middle of the continents yeah <laughs> but part of part of a we that is forming what whatever the label is Christian Hindu Buddhist 
agnostic, non-religious. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that is one downfall of the kind of um, not downfall. Uh, one of the way, one of the things that we're those of us who have moved past a we, a label that we feel const- we felt constricted by, and now we've broken free from that. N- now it's like, now what? You're by yourself. How do we? Who's uh, my neighbor? Who's my Who's my neighbor? Am who's I my, my brother's keeper? Hmm. That, those were the right. Those were the questions. Yeah. And I said earlier, the answer is yes. Actually, the truthful answer is no. Cain, you are not your brother's keeper. You are your brother. Hmm. Like that's the point. So yeah, you broke free. You got free of the label. You broke out of the toxic religion. You 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 saved yourself. Like you should be proud of that save yourself if it comes to saving yourself and like trying to protect a religion save yourself right like do it (laughs) always right and then you have to ask the question what is the we who is my neighbor Hmm. who is my neighbor who is my brother do i have a brother and that's how you practice the reality of what it means to be a christian regardless of any label is is the hospitality thing of the love and the serving of yeah. one another and submitting to one another in love and and the, and those scriptures then come alive in a different way because then you've been able to I, you've moved past the you've transcended right the the toxic elements of exclusive religion that is harmful and is regressive even inside the text and you begin to move into the the hope and dream of the text which mm-hmm. is the, the the new jerusalem which is this the the eternal city right like and i'm using that language again not to it's your language hinder. you don't have yeah. to apologize for that i just i just want people uh, to know that language is broad and very yeah. inclusive i think you're on this podcast they understand that <laughs> i hope uh but that's also why it's being this podcast like that's why we started the liturgists and there's a lot of us like actually most of us according to science mike 52 percent of us that listen to this podcast do not call ourselves christian but there's still, we're here and we get together and we talk online and on the Patreon forum and we do different stuff to try to be together to say, okay, even if the labels, even if the old wineskins are not functioning for us anymore, um, we don't want to be alone in this. Yeah. For a non-Christian podcast, yeah. we talk a lot about Christianity. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, still, yes. You know? Yeah. <laughs> well, we're still sweating it. But we 75% still sweating of the hosts... <laughs> Yeah, identify yeah. as Christian, yeah, yeah, but fifty-two percent of the audience doesn't, which is funny, yeah. right? Yeah, um, because it still matters. That's why we're listening. That's but why we're all interested in the conversation. Yep, and we're all interested in each other, and we all know, I think, on some level, that we are each other's brother and sister. And so, can you uh, open binary? Yeah, can you open your hands right now? Yes, I just want you to receive, and I'm going to pray a prayer <laughs> over you. I have it, brother. I know, and I'm just going to pray for an increase. Are you ready? I'm ready for the increase. All I right. am the universe, but whatever's going to increase. Yeah. Okay. I am grateful and eternally thankful for my brother, Vishnu, Michael Gunger. I celebrate you. I honor you. I love you, and I just want to speak over you that you are love, you are light, you are free, and that we need you more now than ever. And I pray that your journey of expansion leads you wherever it leads you. And we're here for it. We're thankful for it. 
Amen. Is that the first prayer of the liturgist podcast of all time? Maybe. I mean, we prayed in tongues that one time. Yeah, yeah, we did pray in tongues. But that I was mean, the first English prayer. <laughs> you know, and I didn't feel the need to say in Jesus' name because it's implied, right? Like it's a reality that Christ is at work reconciling all things to himself. And it's a reality at work, a force at work in the universe that I, that is so implied and is so built in that um, if you name it, awesome. But if you don't, it's still there and you have it and you know it. And so... I just wanted to celebrate you and let you know that you're loved exactly where you're at in your journey. And there's no need to convert you because you are love and you have always been loved and you will continue to be loved. So thank you. William. And I would say to you, thank you for, for continuing in the path and you have plenty of reasons to have walked away years ago from anything resembling religion. You have plenty of reason to have given up on humanity. You have plenty of reasons (laughs) to have given up on love, but you've kept fighting and you've kept enduring and following um, your heart of what you're, you're, you're living out and imagining a Christianity that is worth keeping a term for hmm. <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I love, and that, and partially why I joked that, and it, it was a partially joke, partial joke, um, that if you guys all said, all right, we're done with this, we're not going to be Christians. There really is a chance that I'd be like, okay, give me the name tag. I'll be Christian Michael because I know there's something about this Christian tradition that needs reform Mm -hmm. and needs protest. Mm -hmm. I think part of the protest is walking away from it entirely is boycotting it. I think that's necessary part Mm -hmm. for a lot of us. I think a lot of us need to be science, Mike church going, uh, people that don't fit any of the standard versions of what you would think a Christian. Like if you ask Mike about what he believes about the universe, you just assume he was an atheist. Um, but somehow he's like a Christian, a church. <laughs> I think Christianity needs that. I think it needs what you're bringing to the table. I think it needs what Hillary's bringing to the table, Richard Rohr, all the people, Rachel held Evans, all the people that we've had on this show. And, um, I'm intrigued by it, inspired by it. Um, but I'm also mindful of the need to to not overlook the crusades and slavery that was done in the name of God, at the name of like manifest destiny. Like this is our land. God gave it to us. And here's these people can help build it. Like taking away land from indigenous peoples, all the things that have the blood shed, the, the suicides of LGBT countless LGBTQ people because of the shame that society had built into it because of Christendom. Mm. Um, all that to, to just be like, yeah, but we can have a better Christianity. If it, it, it needs more than that. It needs an element an energy. The protest needs to be like, no, that's too far. We've lost the ability to say that this is good. And I, I think God is saying that. 
Yes. I, I actually think God you. in Christ is saying that yes. right now in this moment. And it's ringing through the work of so many brilliant people that we know and people we don't know. And I think that's, that's what's exciting to me about this current moment of history is the voices on the margins are getting a say now Mm -hmm. they're starting to be heard because of the democratization of the internet. Like it is shifting religious power. It is shifting political power. We are in one of the greatest upheavals. I think America in its history has ever been in outside of the civil war. Like, ideologically speaking it's the it's the same thing physically i don't think we'll get there like because it's the different era um but i do think we're in one of the most prime times for that protest to be heard and to come forward and to be radical like like the rage of it needs to be heard too Mm -hmm. right and when i read the prophets i see the i see the lament and the rage of it too yeah and uh i think we've lost a bit of that and i think Actually, we, again, we're in the dark ages. <laughs> we pr- we've probably really never had it, but now I think we're going to start to get it. And so I think that's the dawn that we're in right now, the the age we're entering in. Yeah, I think it's that. And I also think it's, I don't want to leave out the people that are casually dismissive of it because they're just like, oh, this is stupid. Because <laughs> that part of the the ability to casually dismiss it is its own form of protest, is it its is. own form of for those who are in the story trying to make Christian a word worth using, it's worth noting that a lot of society has just found it completely irrelevant to their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I want to call attention to that as well. That's a val- That's a valuable yeah. uh, expression as well. It's funny because some of those casual people are, are some of the funniest to me. I remember watching like the documentary. Do you know who Gore Vidal is? You know, mm-hmm. Oh, we should watch it. It's a, he's basically the... Him and Jeff Buckley were two political pundits. Basically, the whole arguing political punditry on TV was birthed because of an, an encounter that happened between Jeff Buckley, who was conservative, and uh, he created the National Review magazine, and uh, Gore Vidal, who's kind of who was a liberal. And uh, and that clashing is kind of what made uh, I think it was ABC, like a, like a formidable television statement, a station. Uh, politically speaking and whatever, and ABC News. Anyway, Gore Vidal, like, if you interview him, they would say, he would, they would say, is it wrong to be gay? And Gore Vidal would be like, absolutely not. And they're like, where do you get this from? He goes, because I say so. Right? Like, they're just, <laughs> James Baldwin did the same thing, too, and when asked about his sexuality. He's like, because I say so. Like, <laughs> it's like, whoa, wow. Like, it's, you're right. There's something wildly refreshing when someone just goes, you know what? No. Why? Because I said so. Right? But here's what's funny about I said that. What I like said. I said the Nene leaks, right? I, to- I told them for all you Housewives of Atlanta fans. I told them what that was. I said what I said. Like there's something beautiful about that too. Like it's not just the the you know the man on the island by himself, right? There's there is this kind of thing that it's like I I almost in weird ways. This is totally me being weird, right? I just feel the spirit of Christ sometimes on stuff like that, where you know somebody just kind of has this moment where they're just like no. And it's like an inner resolve that isn't like simply self-defiance for the sake of self-defiance, but it's just this like, no, I know. It's like, my grandfather was like that. I think that's where I get it from a bit too. Like he was very just like, that's wrong. And sometimes he was actually wrong. But like, (laughs) there was still this like, I don't know. There was this, this spirit of Christ in that rebelliousness, in that like casual, like dismissive, like, nope won't do it yeah and uh i i respect those people too and i respect those of you who've been that and and some of you had to do it out of trauma so even more respect to you who just put your foot down and said i won't be abused no more nope yeah and just call bullshit on it so or i won't be a part of the the team that is doing the abusing yeah literally yeah 
Yeah, like I opt out. I can't tell you how many people in LA that I've talked to that have said the main reason they don't go to church is the treatment of LGBT people. Like you said, mm-hmm. it's wild. Like like heterosexual people, and I'm like, really? Yeah. Like wow, that that you would even leverage your own like relationship to church yeah. based on people that you don't like. That's not your story, and uh, it's a it's a very common. Well, I actually I hear it everywhere. It's not just in LA. I think people here are probably more vocal about it, for sure. But like, it, it's kind of. There's this beautiful defiance that I think people have said enough is enough. It is more Christ-like than Christian-like. Far more Christ-like. <laughs> like, I mean? Yeah, like, and I, and I know for a lot of people that's that is still so touchy, and there, there's a lot of views and opinions on homosexuality that are out there, and people are really in process and wrestling. But it, it's it's kind of interesting the moment we're in, just to see where people are putting their thumb on and i think some places people are putting their thumb on us it's, it's not the arc of history and then some places are yeah. so we'll see yeah i'm here to watch but i'm gonna be here regardless so i'll see y'all in 20 years we're still gonna be having this conversation so yeah. so we've spent five episodes mostly giving voice to how christianity can be practiced in a healthy and beautiful way and maybe what's worth salvaging about it and what needs reforming so we'd like to end this series by hearing from some of us that even though we see all of the potential beauty in the faith still say nah I can see the good but I'm not willing to take on that label Christian anymore In so many circles that many of us grew up in, we had language for people like that who backslid, became apostate, who left the faith. And it seems to be rare in Christian circles to celebrate those who journey in different places with different metaphors and labels. And that, of course, is part of why we started The Liturgists, to have a place where People with differing perspectives, different stories, different metaphors can be together without fear of being ostracized or judged for asking questions, for taking bold risks in telling new stories. And even though 75% of the hosts of this show are Christians, it's never been the heart of any of us to try to make everybody else like us, to try to have some sort of monolithic uniform culture where there's one identity or belief system or something that's the center and everyone else has to try to orbit. So I thought a cool way to close out this series on Christianity would be to hear from those who are not Christians among us. So on a forum for our patrons, I posted a question for those who would consider ourselves ex-Christians and in reference to this series saying, we've seen how beautiful Christianity can be. So why is it that some of us still in good conscience cannot call ourselves Christians? And not surprisingly, since we have the best online community in the world, no bias is there, but it's true. We got a ton of really heartful, mindful, beautiful responses. And I'd like to share some of them with you. Fred said, Christianity has been used by politicians 
and companies to increase profits, create an in-out group and control people by creating social pressure and rules. Susan says, there are so many beautiful texts where you don't have to work as hard to interpret them in non-hurtful, offensive, and harmful ways. In my opinion, the Bible is not one of them. Maria writes, I don't want a religion that's about buying me a ticket out of this evil, depraved world and escaping this sinful place. I want to be present with Mama Earth rather than longing for Jesus to take me away to a new heaven and a new earth. Tori writes, The exclusivity, the self-claimed monopoly on truth, the requirement to believe things that are scientifically impossible, the toxic purity culture, the lack of affirmation for LGBTQ plus folks, the shame and guilt associated with being a sinner. She goes on to say, Mystical Christianity can certainly be beautiful, but I still can't quite be a part of it, because Christian writings, beliefs, symbolism are no longer any more important to me than other types of spiritual wisdom. That is, I don't think Christianity is any more true than other ways of seeing things. So it wouldn't make sense to give myself that label. Lucy writes, I cannot reconcile my hope that love is the driving force of the universe with a story that places a requirement on human beings to choose to follow, repent, and proclaim a God in a certain manner. Even if there is an emphasis on grace, humans are still required to act, move towards, accept, and receive God's love, and buy into the story in order to be saved. The essence of the Christian gospel message seems exclusionary. Brandon said, I spent most of my life trying to believe, only to fall short. It was only when I embraced the fact that I didn't that I felt free. I like who I am and how I treat people better when I'm not a Christian. Holly wrote, For so long I was trying to find the perfect formulaic Christian worldview and trying on several different theological hats for all life's big questions, trying to hold on to Christianity. Finally, I realized I was choking on holy water while everyone else was bathing in it. And I just needed to set down the Christian title so that I could breathe. And now I feel more free to know and not know and be known. One of the patrons on there named Stephen actually wrote a poem at the end, and I liked it. I asked him to record it on his phone and email it to me. God, you were my child. I raised you in the womb of my perceptions. I coddled you with words like infinite one while I cradled you in my arms. You brought me such comfort. But then, dreamer that I was, stumbling through a corridor of false awakenings, I awoke to find that the sweet one I held was a bundle of ideas enfleshed around your shadow. You were never in my arms. Belief was in my arms. What arms could hold you? What word could speak you? When every time we shape our lips around the air, a tower collapses. We say love, and before the syllable is erected, we have eroded its foundation with our needs. We say God, and you turn toward us only to realize we had been calling over your shoulder 
to our traditions. Jason writes beautifully, Christianity is a religion of, we love you, but I'm tired of your pruning, snipping, chopping at my roots. I do not wish to be grafted into your vine or bred with careful selection so as to remove undesirable traits. Leave me wild, intermingling with all those things not fit for your garden. There's lots more like this. There's like a hundred of them. There are stories of abuse. There are stories of shame. And there are stories of freedom. And I'm going to be honest with you. These people feel like my family. I know what it's like to lose your community. I know what it's like to have people think you're a heretic, an outsider. And ironically, it is the Christian faith of my upbringing that has taught me how God is with the outsiders. And so that's where I've been hanging out lately, out here with the outsiders and the heretics and the sinners. (laughs) But for those of you who do consider yourselves Christians, I would like to say something to you as well, because you're my family too. You're our family too. I hope that you can hear the grace that has filled the hearts and voices of the Christians that we've had on this series talk about their faith in a way that makes it safe for people like me, people like these patrons whose words you've been hearing, to follow our hearts and conscience, and even for some of us, to follow Jesus into not being a Christian. (laughs) And for a world that gets so bent out of shape about language as far as who's on this team, who's on that team, What I love about this space is that we share it together with people who are supposed to be on different teams. Believers and atheists, Catholic, Protestant, agnostic, Mormon, Buddhist, tongue talkers and psychedelic users. We're all here to love, to share, to be connected in a place, in a space that is brave, where we can bring our true selves, our true thoughts to the table and be welcome as we are. May we never let labels get in the way of each other, of love, of synergy, of creating a more beautiful world together. Thanks for listening, everybody.